Today's text will be found in Genesis chapter 23. I'll read the entire chapter. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me for Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me, I will give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, in the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today we're moving on from Genesis chapter 22, which uh, we've spent a good deal of time in the last few weeks. We've kind of lingered there in that wonderful chapter. And we're thankful really to God for his providence, which allowed us to, to dwell on such a significant chapter at such a significant time. Uh, it's great that we got to consider the sacrifice of Isaac right around Good Friday and Easter. The Lord's timing is always perfect. I'm always blown away by it, and we saw it once again. Now, in going from Genesis chapter 22 to 23, we are moving from a near-death experience, or as the author to the Hebrews put it, a figurative death to an actual death. Both of these were excruciating events for Abraham and for Isaac, as we shall see. And both of these were exercises in faith. 
It, not only is there a life of faith, but it turns out there's also a death of faith. There's a way to die in faith and not just walk by faith. Again, the author to the Hebrews provides us with a really helpful commentary on this portion of Scripture. When it says about Sarah and eventually Abraham and other Old Testament saints, Hebrews says this, These all died in faith, not having received the promise, the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's that's a wonderful commentary on this portion of Scripture. And if you get that, then you're in great shape. That's Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. And it describes exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 23. Lord willing, the death of Sarah is going to provide us with an opportunity to see what it looks like to die in faith and to grieve with hope and to live as a sojourner, and also to seek a lasting city. This chapter also gives us an opportunity for us to, to delve into some important issues related to the subject of death. I expect that parts of this sermon will be more topical than you are perhaps accustomed to, but I, I do want to just kind of capitalize on the chance to share my perspective on some things Things that are, I've found very difficult to speak about and to receive, if you're on the other end, in the moment. That is, when you're dealing with the death of a loved one or when your own death is imminent. It's, things are pretty raw then, and we tend to be less reasoned. So perhaps today, with some distance, though I think we can all admit that we're never very distant from death, even today, we're continuing to grieve the loss of, of some church family members and um, some family members related to the members of our church. Perhaps we can consider some things with a little bit more objectivity and intentionality. So that's a bit of a teaser. I hope we can get to these things. I want to really show you three main things from this chapter. First of all, I want us to see the goodness of grief. Second, the rightfulness of rising. And third, the beauty of burial. The goodness of grief, the rightfulness of rising, and the beauty of burial. This sermon is also going to be atypical in that I expect that the first two points will be relatively brief and then we'll give the bulk of our attention to the third point, which is usually the opposite. Uh, so that's, that's where we're going. That's a roadmap for you as we dive into Genesis chapter three, let, 23. Let's look first at the goodness of grief. Uh, it's wonderful to see some folks back with us that we haven't seen in a while. It's great to have the Ganges um, back from Arizona. And it's such a joy to have our matron saint, uh, Norma Maltby, back with us. 
Norma, welcome. Welcome home. Um, I often think about Norma's late husband, Bud, who used to read the obituaries every day, as he explained, to make sure that I'm not in there. Well, if you were reading that, the relevant portion of the Hebron Herald at this time, at that time, you may have come across something like this. Sarah died peacefully yesterday at Kiriath Arba in her 128th year. The matriarch is survived by her husband, Abraham, and beloved son, Isaac, along with many nieces and nephews and countless servants. Funeral death, funeral details will be forthcoming. You might have read something like that. And yes, funeral arrangements will be forthcoming in the chapter. Details about her burial are going to be attended to in due course, but there is something that takes priority here. Look at the second half of verse 2. It says, And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. I want you to see here, friends, the goodness of grief the appropriateness of tears in the face of death. In Ecclesiastes, the preacher declares that there's a time to be born and a time to die. And corresponding to this, there's a time to weep and there's a time to mourn, a time to laugh and a time to to dance. Sorry, I I messed that up. We see this in opposites, a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. And with the passing of his dear wife, there's no question that this is an appropriate time for Abraham to mourn and to weep. Now, you might be tempted to think, oh, this is probably like no big deal for Abraham, uh, the passing of his wife, because his wife, let's face it, had a good long life. She was 127 years old, which... In the context of Genesis here, as we've seen, that's about seven bonus years beyond what God had declared the life expectancy to be in Genesis chapter 6. C.S. Lewis, on the other hand, was married to his wife Joy for only three or four years. And when she died of cancer, uh, Lewis grieved deeply. During that time, he gave us a real window into his sorrow and this, the idea of, of grief and sorrow in general by writing the classic book, A Grief Observed. The, the death of a loved one, Lewis described in that book as an amputation. And countless mourners down through the, the years have appreciated how Lewis was able to put into words in that book the pain that we feel in our sorrow. A lot of times we know what we're feeling, but we can't really describe it. And gifted people like Lewis are able to put it into words exactly what we're feeling. And, and when you read that book, it's, it's like tortured, anguished sorrow of Lewis, which you know he, he wrote under a different name, so we wouldn't think it was him. But you, you see the, the pain and the anguish of a soul that has lost its lover. And why would we think that it would be easier on someone who's lost a woman that he has known and loved for 127 years? It doesn't get easier, I submit to you. It it perhaps gets much more difficult. 
And we should also not be tempted to think that it's undignified for a prince such as Abraham, as Abraham's described here by the Hittites in verse 6, for a prince to sit himself down before his deceased wife's body and to mourn and to weep. And I don't know if you're picturing that scene in your mind or, and if it's got some sound to it, but whatever volume you're playing that in your head at and whatever volume of tears you think are spilled in that scene, you should multiply that by a hundred, let's say. Considering that Abraham was not a reserved Anglo, but he was a demonstrative Near Eastern, shall we say. No, no doubt there was wailing. Much more wailing than whimpering. He, he was, this was most certainly a very loud and demonstrative grief. I think another harmful tendency that we have is to let our theology kind of get out in front of our sorrow. Or worse, to let it get out in front of someone else's sorrow. Of course, you know me. You know, you know the truth. You know that theology p- plays a crucial role, as we shall see. But it shouldn't be marshaled in such a way that it short-circuits or discourages grief. Uh, back in the... I'll try to illustrate what I mean here. Back in the mid-1800s, there was a Methodist church musician by the name of Ralph E. Hudson. He was the, uh, if I could say this without making enemies, he was the, the Chris Tomlin of his day in that he, he kind of suffered under the delusion that classic hymns needed a fresh coat of paint in the form of a peppy new chorus. And so it's my studied opinion, of course, I'm being snarky, but it's my opinion that classic hymns need no such thing. They need nothing. But in Hudson's hands, Isaac Watts' famous lines, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, became at the cross. And, and Watts' sorrow-filled verses now climax with the, And now I am happy all the day. And again, no offense, I, I'm aware that that very might well be your favorite song, and I'm sorry if it is, but in my personal opinion, the result is just jarring. To, to consider your, yourself a, a worm that Christ died for, and then to get into this jig on the chorus is just jarring. And similarly, it's jarring when you are grieving the loss of a child, say, and someone trots out their theology to say, well, he's in a better place. Or when they, when they drop Romans 8.28 on you, expecting that that's going to be like a giant Kleenex that'll just stop the flow of your tears. And I'm suggesting that tears are, are proper, and sorrow is totally appropriate, and grief is good. And if you needed any more proof of this, then you don't need to look any further than the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the shortest, and in my opinion, one of the sweetest verses in all of Scripture, we read that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. 
when he stood before the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, when he's trying to console the sisters who are also grieving. And not only does the, the passage say that, but it tells us that Jesus was, quote, deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And the Greek word that, that's translated there is the same word that's used to describe the, the snorting of a ho- horse when it is agitated. And maybe you've heard that. Maybe the campers at Camp Kareth have heard the snorting of a horse when it's agitated. And what, So what we have here, friends, is a graphic description of Jesus who is deeply moved by loss and behind it by the reality of the fall and the curse and by the presence of sin and by the wages of sin. All of these just descend on him in that moment like a, a blanket and the grief is it's hard. You want to talk theology, how about a theology of sin? You know, we aren't too very many chapters away from Genesis chapter 3 where we saw that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin so that death spread to all men because all sin. This is the this is the narrative arc that we're following. Mankind is plunged into sin and under the curse. And the result of that is that we all die as the wages of our sin. If there's anything that's appropriate to grieve over, it's the reality of sin and its inevitable result, death. The bottom line is that when you experience the, the death of a loved one, you have permission to grieve. Don't think that you're being super godly if, if, you don't, if, if you don't cry, if you don't let anyone ever see you cry. It's good and right that you would mourn and weep and wail to give full vent to your deep sorrow. And when someone else has experienced the death of a loved one, you have permission, and let me be even stronger than that, you have the commission to weep with those who weep, to share their sorrows, to bear their burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And by doing so, we live according to the example of Christ, as we saw. Well, I hope you can see from Abraham the goodness of grief. I want you to see in the second place the rightfulness of rising. I'm taking this from verse 3 where we read that Abraham rose up from before his dead. Now again, I don't intend to dwell on this point, nor do I want anything that I say under this heading to detract from what I just said under the previous one. Grief is good It has its time and its place. It is appropriate to fall down and to weep before you're dead. But then, it's good to rise. It's right to rise up. To do what King David did after his child, the one that he had with Bathsheba, died. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20 says that David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. 
There comes a time when sorrow becomes excessive, when it is prolonged, when it is paralyzing. There is a kind of grieving that is without hope. I don't have any easy answers for you. I don't have any formulas as to when and where this line is crossed. Um, Appropriate mourning periods vary by situation and by time and by culture. So, for example, later in Genesis, we're going to see that when Jacob dies, his sons observe a seven-day mourning period. Later generations would expect someone like Abraham to wear black for a year and a day. A year and a day after a spouse's passing. And I'm I'm not interested in time limits. I hope you understand. I simply want us to recognize the rightfulness of rising, to re-engage in responsibilities, to do the things that the Lord has called you to do, perhaps with increased urgency. In, in that book that I mentioned earlier, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis concludes, he says, and now I come to think of it, there is no practical problem before me at all. I know the, the two great commandments, and I better get on with them. That, that is appropriate. And there is, in Abraham's case, a very important responsibility that he has before him in regards to his deceased wife. And so it's necessary for him to, to rise. And this brings us to our third and final point in which I'm eager for you to see the beauty of burial. The beauty of Burial. And really, the bulk of this chapter is concerned with Abraham securing the proper burial place for Sarah. There's, uh, there's lots of things going on with this one action, but I want us to see in the first place that Abraham was motivated to deal honorably with his wife's body. It was necessary for him to, quote, bury his dead. And that's a refrain that is repeated over and over again in this passage. It lets you know its importance when it's repeated like that. He needs to bury his dead. And Abraham, has a, he's got his eye on the perfect spot. It's a, a cave of Machpelah, which literally means double cave. So that, that indicates that it was at least very large, but perhaps it was, it was arranged so that you could actually like uh, lay bodies maybe on two levels or maybe side by side. I don't know if it was a double-decker cave or what, but this is, this is what he was eyeing to be the family burial plot for his descendants for years to come. The problem was that Abraham was a sojourner. He was a foreigner in this land. This land is occupied by the Hittites. And again, that is a, that's a word that is repeated over and over again in the passage. And it, it kind of lets you know what the problem is. You, you read Hittites, Hittites, the people of the land, the people of... The, this is not Abraham's possessed land right now. He's in the territory of the Hittites. And as a sojourner, he had no rights to purchase land there. But at the same time, Abraham is very respected 
The Hittites recognize that he is God's man. They call him the Prince of God. They understand him to be strong and prosperous, or in a word, to be blessed. And so respected is he that the leaders offer him his pick of their best tombs, their own family tombs, their offering that Abraham could lay uh, the body of Sarah in one of those. They said, whatever you want, how can we help you? you? You can have your pick of our tombs. And this, of course, is very, very generous. But Abraham wants to own a cave. And that's the difference. Abraham wants to possess his own land, his own cave for this purpose. And his wife deserves nothing less. Nothing but the best for his baby. And what we have in these verses, in this chapter, is a very flavorful exchange between Abraham and the leaders of the Hittites, and then finally one of the men, this man by the name of Ephron, the son of Zohar. And it's a very respectful exchange, but it has all of the elements of the kind of dealings that you would encounter in an ancient Near Eastern culture. culture. This is like a, a real, you're getting to hear a real estate deal played out. And so you get to see that delicate dance, that back and forth, the, the negotiations. And it's really kind of uh, neat to read. Although it ends rather abruptly. You'll, you'll, you'll remember that Ephron offers Abraham his cave and his field, along with all of the trees, which, by the way, I I just want to point out this detail. The fact that that this real estate deal would mention trees, it might seem really incidental, but historians are finding that that was very common among Hittite real estate deals, that they would actually mark out and identify all of the trees that went along uh, with the deal. And so this is just one in a multitude of little details that are in the Bible that affirm its historicity and its accuracy. You can, you can believe this history. Anyways, Ephron offers this real estate for the hefty price of 400 shekels of silver. And who knows, maybe, maybe this is uh, you know, like the first example of many examples down through the history where where people take advantage of the bereaved by fleecing them for funeral expenses. That could be going on here. But it could also be that this was the starting price. And Ephron maybe fully expected Abraham to dicker with him and to whittle him down. But Abraham doesn't do that. He, He does what he said that he would do, which is to pay the full price. And so in the presence of many witnesses... Abraham purchases a beautiful burial plot as the final resting place for Sarah's body. And I, I just want you, I don't want you to miss the, the care and the expense that Abraham went to so that he could give his wife a proper burial. And this is very much in keeping with how we saw how Jesus' followers, specifically Joseph of Arimathea, how he was uh, very concerned to take good care of Jesus' body after he had died. From requesting the body from Pilate 
um, permission to take the body and to care for it, to embalming the body on you know, part of those uh, women, to laying him in a virgin tomb, if you will. That is a, a tomb that no one else, it's fresh. No one else has ever um, been laying there before. Jesus' body in all of this is treated with the dignity that he deserved. Heaven forbid that the body of our Lord would suffer dishonor and desecration. Now here, here's the controversial part of this sermon. You ready for it? I, I teased you with it at the beginning. I, this is the part that I said that it's hard for many people to receive. And I, I hesitate to, to get into this stuff when we have um, visitors with us and it's a wonderful day and everything else. But, but I do think it's appropriate at this juncture to just bring up a question that lots of people ask me. And that is, is it okay for a Christian to be cremated? Or for a Christian to make arrangements for a loved one's body to be cremated? And cremation, kids, is when you put a person's dead body into a really hot furnace at high heat and it reduces that body to ashes. And those ashes are then placed in an urn or sometimes they're scattered um, at a special spot or something like that. And most of the time that, that people ask me this question, unfortunately, is in the moment, okay, where people are expecting, uh, you know, they're, they're having to make arrangements, and they, they weren't expecting to. And I think people are expecting that I will say, yeah, yeah, no problem, it's fine. And to be honest with you, I don't, I don't really feel the freedom in that moment to argue strongly against it, that it's not, and to say that it's not permissible. It's, it's kind of a difficult position to be put in to say something like that. And not only that, but it is actually very difficult to point to a chapter and a verse that says, see the Bible forbids cremation, which is what most people that ask this question, that's what they're looking for. They, they want like a real simple answer. Does the Bible... Um, say yay or nay. Very difficult kind of question to answer, but still, if you're asking me what the scriptural viewpoint is on this question, I want to say that the Bible is for burial. That's the uniform testimony of scripture. The, the idea that the corpse of a loved one or of a Christian, that it would be burned, it seems to me would be horrific to any of your favorite Bible characters. Pick one. If you were to ask them, what do you think of me when I die, my body being burned and reduced to ashes? That would, that would be appalling and horrific to them. They would recoil at the thought that anyone would deal so violently with the deceased and when we read of bodies that are burned in Scripture, it, it is done so in judgment or out of a desire that an enemy's body would suffer shame and dis dishonor. If you want to desecrate a body, that's what you do. And if you just kind of look at the sweep of human history, it's only very, very recently that Christians consider cremating their dead. And it's at the point now 
it's happened very quickly, where something like fully half of all bodies are cremated. Now, of course, someone could give economic reasons why people might choose cremation over burial. It's about half the price. But then again, I, I, you know, I think Abraham would be appalled at the idea of trying to save a buck when it, when it comes to the privilege and the responsibility of burying a spouse. So here's Abraham weighing out 400 shekels, which is an astronomical amount of money by any standard, and he's doing it without question. And, and you're, he's, he, he's hearing you ask him you know, if, if you can save a few bucks by doing it this other way. Now, someone, will, someone else will certainly object that at the resurrection of the dead, God is certainly able to reconstitute bodies from ashes, just as he is going to be able to reconstitute the bodies of people who have been lost at sea and torn apart by lines and burned at the stake at the hands of others. Of course he's able. No one doubts that. But that's not really the question, is it? The question is, is it permissible? Is, it, is cremation preferable? And my answer is, if you're asking me, it most certainly is not. I, I promise to you that I won't ever insist that you take this same view. Okay, I, I, again, I don't have the... I'm not e- able to easily and quickly and definitively point you to chapter and verse. I'm not going to insist that you take the same view. And at the end of the day, I'm not going to refuse to officiate at your funeral or your loved one's funeral if you choose cremation. But you need to know that it's not, a, historically speaking anyways, a Christian practice. I understand that more and more Christians are practicing it, but it's not a Christian practice. Burial is. And I want you to see the beauty of burial. Think about the picture that it it presents. By his glorious resurrection, our Lord Jesus Christ has radically changed our perspective on death. He's the first fruits as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And his resurrection is a preview, it's just a foretaste of what will happen to all of us. Though we die, yet shall we live. Our bodies are going to be reconstituted and reunited with our souls and we will live eternally in the new heavens and the new earth. And until that time, and because of that glorious reality, the death of the people of God the saints, is described in Scripture simply as sleep or rest. And burial, I'm suggesting to you, is the most beautiful way, most natural way to portray that. The fact that the the saint is merely sleeping. He's or she is simply resting as we await the resurrection as we await that time in which the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised, they they shall be woken up and rise to meet their Savior in the Lord. And then we will be forever with the Lord, with glorified bodies. I'm so glad that the lilies are still out, even though it's tickling my nose. I'm so glad, uh, Rob's reminder earlier, that we we still want to live 
in light of the resurrection. And this is, this is certainly true when it comes to how we think about our death. We, we want to die with the hope, and we want everything around death to be showcasing the hope that is actually ours. And this idea of hopefulness is really the point of this whole passage. Do you see what Abraham is doing? He's not just buying a plot of land so that he can give an honorable burial to his wife. In faith, he is taking possession of the land that God has promised that he's going to give him and his descendants as an inheritance. This is where this is all so amazing when you read over and over Hittites, the people of that land, this is their land. You also have this repeated phrase, the land of Canaan, the land of Canaan. And that reminds us that this is the land that God has promised to give to Abraham and to all of his descendants as an inheritance. So this is, this is why Abraham is insisting on, on making it his, on buying it so that it was deeded in his name. He is laying hold of that promise by purchasing this little plot of land in Canaan, even though it will be, be some years until his descendants take full possession of it. This is where he's going to be. This is where his descendants are going to be for generations to come. And even though right now they're aliens and strangers in this land, they are one day going to fully possess it. And Abraham's purchase is based on that hope and based in that promise. And brothers and sisters, this is precisely how we ought to live and how we ought to die. Like Abraham, we ought to consider ourselves sojourners, aliens and strangers. And Hebrews, again, reminds us that people who who speak that way, who think of themselves like that, people who live in the light of that reality, are making it clear that this earth is not their home, but that they are seeking a homeland. It's a testimony that we are seeking a better country, even a heavenly dwelling. And our deaths can testify to this as well. As we're laid to rest, as we deal um, tenderly and carefully with bodies who have died, we proclaim in a picturesque way that we are expecting on that great day to rise again with incorruptible bodies, to dwell forever with our Savior and with our God in a city that he has prepared for us and promised to us. We're, we're laying hold of that promise even in our death. So friends, as by God's grace, which is how any of this can ever happen, let us, as the song says, let us stand as children of the promise. Let us fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done, let's walk by faith and not by sight. And then, when our race is finished and the work is done, let us lie down as children of the promise 
in rest and sleep, but in great confidence that when we rise, faith will be sight. And the promises that we have laid hold of in this life and at death will be eternally ours for the glory of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen.